as we pay one more visit to Amos in this series in the Minor Prophets. We're going to go to chapter 5, and tonight we'll consider verses 4 through 15. Amos chapter 5, verses 4 through 15. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. But do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who makes the destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, You have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions, and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe, and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. (coughs) And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless his word to us now. Father, we thank you for the message of the prophet Amos. We thank you for the words of all the prophets. And as we reflect on a portion of the prophecy of Amos tonight, we pray that Christ will be exalted, that we will hear words of good news, words of gospel. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Oftentimes when people are dealing with problems or issues, we have a tendency to wrongly oversimplify the issue, to wrongly analyze issues from an either-or perspective when they might actually be more complex. They're not quite so cut and dried. But some issues, on the other hand, are very cut and dried, very simple, two-sided either-or propositions. And we have one before us in the text this evening. In fact, the issue that's before us in the text this evening is the most important issue of all. And it's an either-or proposition, a cut-and-dried, two-sided issue. 
Now, as we jump back into the middle of Amos tonight, uh, I'll just remind you that in this particular section of Amos, uh, there has been this collection of judgment speeches, three of them uh, to be exact, and this is the third and final judgment speech given by Amos against the northern kingdom. Remember, uh, when Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom became known as Israel, the, lo- the southern kingdom uh, retained the name of Judah. And this northern kingdom, called Israel, had been practicing idolatry for generations. In fact, it's important for us to remember that the northern kingdom was founded on idolatry. Because as soon as they broke away from the house of David, their first king, fearful that the people of the northern kingdom would go back to Jerusalem and worship the Lord in the place that he had ordained and then be drawn away from him as king, he set up calves as idols in the northern kingdom and told the people, don't go to Jerusalem, go and worship God here at these idols, these calves that I have set up. One of them was down in Bethel, and that's why the name Bethel is mentioned in this text. The other one was far, far north in a city called Dan. The point being that that northern kingdom never in their whole history truly and properly served God. They always were serving idols and worshiping God falsely. God urges all people to turn from sin, to seek him and live. And he's even making this offer of grace, we could say, to a kingdom, to a a nation who for generations had been turning away from him, serving false gods and even when they served the true God, to whatever extent they did, they served him and worshipped him in a false way. He reaches out to them with his grace. He reaches out to them, it's fair to say, with the gospel. And he urges them, just as he urges all people, to turn from sin, to seek the Lord, and live. So first, this evening, we're going to see the way of life. Secondly, a little bit more extensively, we're going to consider what this passage from Amos says about the way of destruction. And those are the two choices. There's really only two. You've got the way of life and you've got the way of destruction and there's no middle way. And then we're going to see what this passage says to us about the supremacy of God also. So first of all, and somewhat briefly, the way of life. Briefly, because it's really not very complicated. We see it in verse 4 and in verse 6. Seek the Lord and live. And as we're reading through the text, you may have noticed it's a rather dark passage. It's rather gloomy. There's a lot of rebuke in it, and rightly so. And yet, when speaking to this rebellious people, God himself extends a message of hope. And that message comes with a command, the command, seek me. And what's at stake? Whether we seek the Lord or whether we don't. What's at stake here? Life itself is at stake. Look at verse 4. Seek me and live. In other words, if you seek the Lord, you will live. If you don't, you will not. Again in verse 6. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire 
This is a gospel call to repentance. Turn from sin, turn to God is the command here. Look with me at verse 14. Notice how he elaborates a little bit on this, this call to seek the Lord, to seek God. It says, seek good and not evil that you may live. So seeking God includes seeking good. I thought of the words of Psalm 37, verse 3, where the admonition, the exhortation of the psalmist is, trust in the Lord and do good. And those who truly are trusting in the Lord will seek to do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. So seeking God includes seeking good, as as we see in verse 14. Seeking God and seeking good also requires us to do what is opposite that, which is uh, to hate evil. So it says in the beginning of verse 15, hate evil and love good. Two sides of the same coin. We see the same thing in Psalm 97, verse 10. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote, In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This is very vivid language, you see. We're to abhor evil. We're not just to sort of have a mild disdain for it. We should have and we should be cultivating a a revulsion toward evil. And then on the other hand, hold fast, to cling steadfastly to hold as tightly as we're able to what is good. Seek the Lord and live. So do you see what's happening here? As God sends his prophet to this kingdom of rebels, he's extending grace. He's extending grace to sinners. And as as that sort of comes home to us and as it speaks to us and it applies to us, we need to be assured God is not ignorant of our sins. We have that practice, that that correct practice in our morning worship services particularly of spending some time in the confession of sin. But we shouldn't get the idea that God doesn't know about our sins unless we confess them to him. He's fully aware. He is not ignorant of our sins. In fact, it says as much in verse 12 of our text. Look at it. Amos 5, verse 12. The verse starts out with the Lord saying to his people, For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. Now through self-examination and by the grace of God, we can come to know our sins. We can come to acknowledge them and confess them. But you you may think you know your sins but God knows them fully. And yet even in the depths of Israel's immorality and their rebellion, God offers hope for those who will seek him. And the same is true for sinners today. The same is true for each one of us. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord, and it may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious. And this is the call of all the prophets. I think when I preached this passage uh, last time, back in 2021, I think, 
made reference to the fact that you may never have read or heard the book of Amos, but that phrase, seek the Lord, might have a familiar ring to it. And the reason is because that's what all the prophets said. Seek the Lord. My favorite example, or one of my favorites, comes from Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. This is the way of life. But then that brings us to the way of destruction and to consider that. What does the way of destruction consist of? Well, the text gives us many descriptions of the way of of destruction. First and foremost, idolatry and false worship are the way of destruction. Verse 5. Do not seek Bethel. Do not enter into Gilgal or cross over to Beersheba. What's the significance of Bethel and of Gilgal and Beersheba? The significance of all of those is they were, they were places of false worship. They were what uh, the scripture sometimes refers to as high places. These were centers of idolatrous worship. You may recognize some of these names. Bethel is very important in Scripture because that's the place where when Jacob was fleeing Esau and he was going to the land of his ancestors to seek a wife, he stopped and he laid his head down and he put a, set up a pillow, a, a rock for his pillow, and he slept and he had that vision of Jacob of the ladder you know, with the angels of heaven ascending and descending. That was at Bethel. Bethel is also one of the places where Jeroboam, first king of the northern kingdom of Israel, set up one of his calves for people to worship. So you go from the patriarch Jacob having a vision of God and, and that ladder, which ultimately was a, a sort of a type, a, a picture, an image of, of Christ. You go from that to a nationally um, franchised place of idol worship. That's Bethel. What about Gilgal? Well, when the people of Israel came into the land, when they crossed over the Jordan and they got ready to engage in the conquest of the land, Gilgal was where their base camp was. The base of operations for the conquest of the promised land was Gilgal. So in that sense, it was a great place. It it would have had uh, great memories for the people of Israel in their history. And yet, it's also the very place where, where Israel's first king, Saul, became impatient and took that very unwise and wicked step of offering a sacrifice that he was not authorized to do. So here you have a place that had great connections to the mighty works of God and, and the history of, of God's people that had then later become a center of idol worship. And then Beersheba. Beersheba is a place very, very far south in the territory of Judah. It's one of the southernmost points of the whole territory of God's people, of the, of the land of Canaan. 
In fact, there's, when, when you read in Scripture and it makes reference to uh, from Dan to Beersheba, that's uh, just another way of Scripture saying from north to south. Dan was one of the cities at the very northernmost edge or border of the land of, of the, the promised land, the land of Israel, and then Beersheba was all the way down in the south. So from Dan to Beersheba meant the whole land from top to bottom. Beersheba was very special for the people because Abraham, for a time, lived there. And so did Isaac. And then Jacob, even. Uh, so all three of the, the main patriarchs lived there at different points in time, but they, it too, tragically, became a place for pagan worship. These were places that people either worshipped false gods or they would presume to worship the true God, but they do it in false ways. So these locations that are mentioned in verse 5, they symbolize the sinful religious practices of Israel. You might think, okay, well, that's Israel. What does that have to do with us? Well, the fact is, in our country today, idolatry and false worship are rampant as well. We're just as idolatrous and just as guilty of false worship as the ancient people of Israel were. Uh, people in our day, in our country, seek satisfaction. They seek security. They seek fulfillment in anything and everything except God. And then as far as false worship, think of the different things that are being introduced into worship services, into religious services in our country. They don't even look like worship anymore. So we bear a, a regrettable resemblance to the ancient people of Israel so that, because they're guilty of idolatry and false worship. Another aspect of this way of destruction is injustice. Look with me at verse 7. You who turn justice into wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. God's own people, in other words, were being grossly unjust. Injustice was rampant in the land. Now, justice is a good thing. God loves justice. And he wants us to love it and to pursue it. But the people to whom Amos was preaching, instead of upholding righteousness, they were overturning it. How were they doing that? Verse 11 says they're trampling the poor, having no regard for the needy. They were afflicting the righteous. They were accepting bribes, according to verse 12. We could go on and on. These things don't require a whole lot of explanation because they're things we see today in our own country. Injustice. A third thing, refusal to listen to what is right and good. Does that sound familiar? Verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate and they abhor him who speaks the truth. <clears throat> in the ancient world, the gate refers to the gate of the city. Why was that significant? Because in the ancient world, the gate of the city was essentially the courthouse. The same way, you know, if, if people have a grievance or if there needs, needs to be some kind of a hearing on something or justice needs to be done, we would go to the city courthouse or the county courthouse. The people in the ancient world, they would go to the gate because the elders of the city would sit there and they would hear cases. 
and they would render judgment in lawsuits and so on. When it makes reference to the one who reproves, it's talking about someone who rebukes evil and who calls for truth and for justice. And Amos's hearers hated the truth. They wouldn't accept rebuke. They refused to be corrected. And because that was the atmosphere in which they lived, that's why you see what you do in verse 13. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Now, that might be a little bit troublesome to us, but we, we, the way we should understand this is this is not given as advice. It's not saying um, you know, the righteous should just be silent. But he's saying because of the culture, because of the atmosphere, the environment of wickedness and rampant corruption, this is what was happening. It's an observation about the culture. The, those who are prudent would just zip it, not say anything. Keep silent, because the times are so evil. And as a result of all this stuff, the refusal to listen to what is good, the injustice, the idolatry, God is warning the people in this passage of assured destruction. Look with me again at verse 6. In the last part of verse 6, it says, God will break out like a fire in the house of Joseph, and that fire will devour with none to quench it for Bethel. God's wrath against sin is described here as a consuming, unquenchable fire. And then look at verse 9. God is the one who makes destruction flash forth against the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Man's strength, in other words, is of no avail against the Lord. Now, this is the picture that Amos, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has painted of us, painted for us, of the people of Israel in his day. <clears throat> and what's remarkable is that mankind hasn't changed a whole lot since the days of Amos. But neither has God's attitude toward our sin. Human beings in 2023 are mired in the same kinds of sins that polluted the hearts and the lives of the people of 8th century B.C. But God's abhorrence of sin remains the same as well. He still hates sin just as much as he ever did. Sin is the way of destruction. To seek the Lord, that's the way of life. Sin is the way of destruction. Well, finally, this passage has some things to show us about the supremacy of God. And the supremacy of God is a very broad subject because supremacy is a broad term. And there are lots of ways <coughs> in which God is supreme. But I want to speak of the supremacy of God in terms of his greatness and of his sovereignty. First of all, his greatness. We see that in verse 8. Here the Holy Spirit is proclaiming who God is. He says, He's the one who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into the morning and darkens the day into night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth, just like He's doing out there right now. The Lord is His name. So, He's the creator. He's the maker of heaven and earth. 
And that's one of the most glorious things about his greatness. The text in our English Bibles mentions the Pleiades and Orion. In Hebrew, that's Kima and Kezil. And those are the old ancient Hebrew words for these same constellations that we see in the sky even now. We call them Pleiades and Orion. God made them. He's the one that put them there. It reminded me of Psalm 8 when the psalmist says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And I love that description of the stars being the work of God's fingers. Because, you know, there are some stars in our universe that are so huge, they'd be like the size of a beach ball in comparison to our sun if the sun were the size like of a lentil or something. I mean, our sun is huge. This, this star around which our, our planet here orbits, it's a gigantic ball of fire. But there are stars in this universe that make our sun seem miniature. And even the greatest, largest, most uh, amazing of the stars and, and celestial bodies in the heaven are just the works of God's fingers. He just put them out there. That's our God. He made them. And what else did God make? Any of you children who learned the children's catechism, the first question is, who made you? Answer, God. Second question, what else did God make? God made all things. That's what we say in our creed, too. So God is great because he's the creator, but he's great because of his providence as well. He's Lord over the days and over the seasons. That's what the verse was talking about when it says it, he turns darkness in the darkness into the, and darkens the day into night. He turns darkness into the morning. He's the one who's Lord over the rotation of the earth and the orbit of planets. He's Lord over days and seasons. And when it says he calls for the waters, it's saying God is Lord over the water cycle. We can observe it, and scientifically we can figure out the processes of evaporation and, and, and so forth, and, and how the waters are, they accumulate into clouds, and then God causes, you know, the clouds release the rain, but it's all God's doing. He manages it. And our scientific observations are simply observations about the way God works. He's great in his creation. He's great in providence. He's great in his self-existence. His name is I Am. And he's great in his authority. He says he's the Lord of hosts, the God of hosts. In other words, he commands the armies of heaven. So that's God's supremacy in terms of his greatness. But he's also great in terms of his sovereignty. And I want to focus on just one aspect of that, and it comes from verse 15. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. In our doctrine of sovereignty, we say that the Bible teaches that God does all his holy will. His sovereignty is related to his providence. His providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. He's Lord over it all. And he's sovereign over all the cosmos and all of history. 
But do you see the concession that's made in verse 15? To God's sovereignty and salvation, it may be that he will have mercy. Will be, may be that he will be gracious. You see, there's, there's this humility about that statement because there's no presumption. There's no assertion that God owes anyone salvation, that he owes anyone mercy. We are debtors to mercy alone, as we sometimes sing in that great hymn. Or as the first membership question for the PCA puts it, when we come before God, we acknowledge that we are sinners in his sight, justly deserving his displeasure, and we have no hope save his sovereign mercy. We have no hope unless God in his sovereignty decides to have mercy upon us. God is not obligated to save. God is not obligated to be gracious to rebellious, sinful men. However, he freely offers salvation. He freely extends grace to them. He extends grace to you. He says, seek me and live. See, God in his supremacy, in his supremacy, freely offers mercy. And so, it may seem as if there are many ways to choose from in life. There's such a diversity of opinion in the world. There's so many widely differing religions and worldviews, but don't be fooled. There's only one way that leads to life. Seek the God of the Bible and come to him through Jesus Christ, his Son. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the way. He is the only way of life. All the other ways, no matter how radically they may differ from one another, lead to the same end. And that end is destruction. They may have different flavors, but they're all the same deadly poison. Norse paganism, Scientology, Hinduism, humanism, Islam, Mormonism, Deism, and every other one. These paths may wind a thousand different directions, but none of them leads to life. All together, considered as a whole, they are the broad, easy way that leads to destruction. Jesus warned about that way. And you know what? God could have allowed every single one of us just to continue on in our own selfish, foolish, destructive path. But instead, he sent his beloved son. And he called us to listen to him. And to whom else will you go? Jesus Christ alone has the words of eternal life. Let's go to him together. Lord God, we thank you for extending mercy. We thank you for showing us the weight of life. Place us in that way and keep us in it and see us safely home to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.